I am here not to give more announcements, but to read today's passage, which is Psalms chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, welcome again to Regeneration. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here and filling in for Albert again this Sunday. You guys can be praying for Pastor Albert. His chest cold cough thing is not going away and can't really talk. So hard to preach when you can't talk. This morning, we are going to talk about Psalm 2. We're going to talk about religion and politics. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for... This church, this community, what you're doing here in Oakland, what you're even doing through extensions of us in places like Turkey, we continue to lift up those who are doing good work all over the world and here in our own city, God. May you continue to protect them and sustain them, give them the strength to do the work that you have called them to do, called us to do. God, we do celebrate new life and the step that some of our folks took yesterday in baptism. Please be an encouragement and a protection to them right now as they kind of come off the high of that moment, but at the same time, God, continue to sustain their walk as they follow you. And God, while we do celebrate many great things, we also come into this place this morning with anxiousness, with questions, with even a, a sense of hopelessness about either circumstances in our life or these bigger things that we see happening in our world. And so we look to you this morning for hope. And we turn to your word this morning to be reminded of what is really actually true about the world, about how you hold all things together, even when it doesn't make any sense to us. Help us to see that and know that this morning as we turn our attention to your word. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you were here this summer for our Genesis series, I brought this up some point in that series. But this idea, there's this concept floating around out there on the internet about how 2016 is the worst year ever. Some people continue to feel this way. And so I thought I'd share a couple of those things. Most of those are articles, but I found a couple of things on Twitter. It went out Twitter, not the greatest source of information. But at the same time, I think these help sort of highlight and explain what we're talking about when we're talking about 2016 being the worst year ever. So here's the first one. This is more of a picture, I think. Basically how this year is going. Can you guys see that? <laughs> it's a Jenga tower falling on a child. Hopefully it turned out okay. All right, here's the second one. In 20 years' time, you're at a pub quiz, and the question starts with, in what year? Just answer 2016. <laughs> and then this is my favorite one, this last one right here. 
Have we tried unplugging 2016, waiting 10 seconds, and plugging it back in? <laughs> All the tech people said amen. According to a recent CNN poll, over 60% of Americans are pessimistic about the future. It's one of the highest numbers that people have seen in sort of a positive or negative outlook poll. The other 40% are Cubs fans, right? <laughs> there just is, in this moment that we're in right now, there is this deep pessimism and cynicism about this year, about this moment in history. And if we're really being honest, a lot of it comes back to the election season that we're in, right? For a lot of people, this has become a source of deep angst. It's become a source of division, either in their family or in their extended network of people. The whole thing has become a theater of the absurd to the point where you, you almost have to just sort of laugh. And so to kind of get us into that spirit, watch this clip with me. <laughs> children like my daughter Chelsea and my granddaughter Chelsea Jr. <laughs> Mr. Trump, same question. Do you feel you're modeling appropriate and positive behavior for today's youth? No, next. <laughs> Look at Psalm 2 verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. See, SNL can help us interpret scripture. <laughs> Now, here's the thing. We don't show this clip to be irreverent or to poke fun at either particular candidate here, but simply to say this is where we're at. This is our moment here in 2016. This is kind of what this whole thing has been reduced to. And again, I think it's contributing greatly to this cultural malaise that we are in. It's absurd, but it's also quite serious, right? God's response to all of this is serious. Psalm 2.5 talks about God's anger towards this. Again, our country is deeply divided. Many of our churches and families have become divided over this election. And again, this sort of pessimism, cynicism, even hopelessness pervades a lot of our culture. And so this forces us to ask some really tough questions. Is God really in control of this? And then... Who do we really trust? At the end of the day, who do we really trust? Do we actually believe, like Paul says in Romans 8, that for those who love God, all things work together for good? For those who are called according to his purpose? It's a really nice thing to put on a cross stitch in your bathroom. It's another to actually really believe those words to be true. So, Psalm 2 dives right into all of this, extremely relevant to the moment that we find ourselves in. And I got I to gotta admit, I was not supposed to speak on this this morning. This is kind of a last minute thing. And yet here we are. And it couldn't be, again, more appropriate, I think, to the moment that we find ourselves in. So let's begin by remembering a little bit about the Psalms. We started this last week when we looked at Psalm 1. And we talked about how the Psalms is this incredible collection of 150 songs and poems, these works of literature that people have used for thousands of years to help them worship and to pray. 
We talked about how the Psalms are both beautiful and disturbing. They can be incredibly honest, brutally honest, right, about human experience. And it can make us sometimes, I think, even uncomfortable. In fact, there's probably language in today's text that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Eugene Peterson writes about the Psalms, Psalm language is not careful about offending our sensibilities. Its genius is its complete disclosure of the human spirit as it makes response to the revealing God. Okay, that complete disclosure of the human spirit. So Psalm teaches us how to worship, how to pray, and the first most fundamental lesson of the Psalms is that in prayer, in worship, you can bring everything to God. All these things that we are experiencing, nothing is too off limits, nothing is too terrible or awesome or mundane or weird to bring to God. We can bring it all. So let's spend a few moments talking specifically about Psalm 2. If you have your Bible there, you can look at it with me. There are two literary techniques in this psalm that are very common throughout the whole book of Psalms. One of them is parallelism. Parallelism is essentially saying the same thing but using different words. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Nations parallels people. Rage parallels plot in vain. Verse 2 talks about kings and rulers who set themselves against, who take counsel together against God. Verse 3 talks about bursting bonds, casting away cords. This Repetition of the same idea, the same thing, just using different words. It's parallelism. Parallelism helps create a rhythm to the poem and also enhance the meaning of the poem. By saying the same thing but using different words, the author is emphasizing a point and in particular conveying a feeling. In this particular psalm, parallelism intensifies the action. You get this sense. This is about big things. Big, important things. The second literary technique is called chiasm or chiastic structure. It comes from the Greek word chi, meaning X. In a chiasm, the outer layers correspond to each other and then the inner layers correspond to each other. So think of it almost like a sandwich. You have two pieces of bread corresponding to each other and then cheese and then meat and whatever other things that you like to put in there, but an equal layer on both sides. And then the real thesis, the big idea, comes right in the middle where the X crosses. Psalm 2, great example of this, really simple chiasm, very easy to explain. I'm thankful for that. There's four stanzas. Each stanza is three verses. So one through three, four through six, seven through nine, ten through twelve. The first three correspond to the last three, and then those middle two stanzas correspond to each other. So look again at the first three verses, which help set the scene. The nations are conspiring against the Lord, conspiring against his anointed one. And this stanza asks the rhetorical question, right? Why do this? Why would you do such a thing? And then that final stanza, verses 10 through 12, responds to this question. Rather than plot against the Lord, the kings of the earth should choose wisdom. Specifically, they should choose to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So the outer layer of the chiasm, again, the first stanza and the last stanza, the bread of the sandwich, if you will, is all about exposing the folly of aligning against God. It's foolish. 
Now the middle section, the meat of the sandwich, further explains this folly. These kings shouldn't plot against the Lord because he's already installed a king. There's already a king. Look at verses 4 through 6. Okay, we've already talked about this a little bit, but the plotting, the counseling, the raging is in vain. It means nothing to God, right? He laughs at it. It does anger him. But it doesn't really mean that much to God because he's already picked his king. Look at verse 6. This connects to stanza 3, verses 7 through 9, where the Lord promises several things to his chosen king. He calls the king his son, promises him the nations, gives the king power over the nations. And so to sum all of this up, the parallelism, the chiastic structure points to this idea. God has given a king, one king, the authority to rule over a powerful kingdom, a kingdom against which it is foolish to conspire. There you go, Psalm 2 in a nutshell. We can pray and go home now, right? <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about what this means. What do we do with this information? Now, first thing we need to do is remember that Psalm 1 and 2 go together. Most scholars would say that Psalm 1 and 2 serve as a sort of introduction to the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, which we looked at last Sunday, operates on the personal level. Remember that conversation, that call to avoid the way of the wicked, walking, standing, sitting with sinners and mockers? Psalm 1 invites us to be deeply rooted in God's word. And it promises us that as we grow deep, we become a life-giving, healing presence for others. It operates on the personal level. A lot of us like this level of spirituality. The level of personal spirituality, very popular both inside and outside the church. And it's important, obviously, for us to engage at this level, but Psalm 2 serves as a counterpoint, a counterbalance to that. It gives us a vision beyond just the personal. Psalm 2 reminds us that there are systems and empires and powerful people and spiritual forces at work in the world, at work against God's king and his kingdom. So again, Psalm 1 teaches us God is active on this personal level, working in us through his word, particularly the word made flesh in Jesus. Psalm 2 teaches us that God is also active in a much larger way and that through his anointed one, he rules over the nations. Second thing we take from all of this, there's this special relationship the text talks about between the Lord and his anointed one. Remember, in a chiasm, the middle is the thesis statement, so we need to pay careful attention to verses 6 and 7. Let's read those again. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The big reveal of Psalm 2 is that the king, this king that the psalm is talking about, is the son of God. Now, this psalm is most often attributed to King David. Many scholars believe King David wrote this psalm. If you're familiar with Scripture, the Old Testament, you know King David, one of the most important central figures in the Old Testament. He was seen as a paradigm, a paragon for a good and God-honoring king. God gives David an incredible promise. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is speaking to David about David's kingdom. And this is what God says. This is 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the Son of Men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Again, many scholars think David wrote Psalm 2 in response to this promise that God made to him. Your kingdom will be established Forever, Psalm 2 would have been read at the inauguration of the next king. Only problem with all of that is that most of the kings who followed David were not good. (laughs) They were really, really, really bad kings. They oppressed people. They introduced idolatry. They made a huge mess of the country. And as a result, the kingdom fell. Now what's interesting is that there would have been a period of several hundred years where the people of Israel, they came to this psalm and they would have sang it or read it or prayed it while they were hundreds of miles from home, living in exile, under an oppressive empire with no king of their own, no Davidic king sitting on the throne. I think it's important for us to sit with that for just a moment. How did these people living in exile interpret this psalm? What did it mean to them, this promise of a king whose throne would last forever? For them, it was a prophecy, right? It was a psalm of hope. This leads us to the third thing we can draw from Psalm 2. When this psalm talks about kings, it's not talking about those kings. When it talks about God's anointed one, that word, anointed one, is the same word as Messiah. So for those living in exile, those who would have been reading and praying this psalm under some oppressive government that had captured them and taken them away, their hope was in Messiah being the fulfillment of this promise. They would have read this psalm as a promise. Now all of this leads us to Jesus. For those who were around during the time of Jesus, who heard his teaching, who knew him, who witnessed his death, who witnessed him after the resurrection, they saw all sorts of connections between Psalm 2 and him. Just a couple of examples. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul preaching about Jesus. He's in a Jewish synagogue trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus is in fact this Messiah that they've been waiting for, that they've been praying for and longing for from Psalm 2. Look at how he talks about it. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Book of Hebrews So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's repeated several other times in the New Testament. 
New Testament writers also pick up on a couple of other verses from Psalm 2, like verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This shows up three times in the book of Revelation in connection to Jesus, chapter 2, 12, and 19. So again, putting all of that together, what Psalm 2 is trying to tell us is God is in control. God is in control of all things, even kingdoms. And the really good news is that there is actually a good king, a king chosen by God, whom God calls his son, and that king is Jesus. Now, a couple of questions, I think, that come out of that. What kind of king is Jesus? What does it mean that he rules, and what does it mean for us to be hopeful? So let's start with that first one. What kind of king is Jesus? Well, we've been this fall in the book of Mark. Albert's been teaching us through the gospel of Mark. So let's use Mark to examine some of the marks of Jesus as king. Begins with his baptism where God speaks over him. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is a strong allusion to Psalm 2. Shortly thereafter, Jesus speaks of inaugurating a kingdom. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's right now. It's among you. After that, Jesus chooses 12 disciples. This was not a random decision. This was not a manageable-sized group for him. 12, a symbolic number representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. Later on, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem as a king. Jesus is anointed in the manner of a king. Jesus is put on trial as a king. But then, of course, there's this huge twist in the story, right? Jesus, after all this buildup towards him becoming king, dies a humiliating death. Everything's been pointing, building towards him, claiming a throne, a position of power and authority, and then he dies. It's not very king-like. A very important scene just past the halfway point in Mark where two disciples are angling for power in Jesus' kingdom. They want to be, you know, in those choice cabinet seats when Jesus is elected president. But look at what Jesus says to them. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man Son of man, connecting to this idea of Messiah, connecting to this idea of king. Even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Can you imagine Trump or Clinton saying that in a debate? King Jesus overcomes the power of the world by subverting the power of the world. He turns the whole thing upside down, power Conquered by powerlessness. That's what kind of king Jesus is. So what does it mean that Jesus rules? Well, this probably deserves a much longer answer than I'm able to give right now. But a couple thoughts. This idea of Jesus ruling sometimes gets wrapped up in this theological debate conversation about God's sovereignty, which is a conversation that I think has gotten 
really warped in our modern minds. When our scriptures were being written, people had a much better understanding of this concept. They didn't live in a democracy. They didn't live in a culture that valued personal freedom the way that we do here in the West. For them, sovereignty, pretty straightforward. It simply meant that ultimate authority belonged to the king. Ultimate authority belonged to the king. The king didn't control what I put on or whether or not I kissed my wife when I got home. But he was my authority. He was in authority, in power over me. Therefore, I would do well to submit to his rule, to recognize that whatever power I do have comes from him, and to honor the king. Because at the end of the day, he's the king, and I am not. Psalm 2 tells us Jesus is the sovereign king in authority over every other king. Any king must recognize that their authority comes from him. Let me be very clear here. No matter who wins this election, Jesus is still the king. And in Jesus, we have a good king. Look at Colossians 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. No matter how goofy things get, no matter how crazy 2016 or whatever moment it might seem, no matter how insane the world feels, King Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So now to that final question about hope. Where do we really find our hope? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. If you are in a place in your life where you're like, I don't really know what to read about in Scripture, I would encourage you to just read 1 Corinthians 15 over and over and over again. (laughs) In this chapter, Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And we're only going to look at a short snippet here. But to this point, he's been sort of debating whether or not it could have possibly happened as he's building his case. And as we look at verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. And he's talking about if Christ has not been raised from the dead, if the resurrection is just a myth. He says, we are of all people most to be pitied. There's no resurrection. We are most to be pitied. But, he writes, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What do we put our hope in? I know very thoughtful, prayerful, well-meaning 
Christians, followers of Jesus, who are on either side of the political spectrum. And they feel like, if my candidate doesn't win, if that other candidate does win, it's over. America's over. Democracy's over. The world is over. And I don't know, maybe maybe it will be. (laughs) I'm not that smart. I don't know the future. But even if it is, that kind of thinking betrays a deeply misplaced hope. Our hope is not in elections. It's not in elected officials. Our hope is in King Jesus. Now, a quick side note. Some people have asked me about this. What I'm trying to say here is not don't care, like don't pay attention, don't care about the election, don't vote. I'm not saying any of those kinds of things. Trusting that Jesus is the king doesn't mean put your head in the sand and pretend like nothing is going on. This is an important moment in time. But again, I know many incredible followers of Jesus who disagree fundamentally about this election, but who have prayed and studied and thought and talked to people and read about it. They're going to vote according to what they believe their conscience is calling them to do. And that's fine. That's good. I know many people who have gotten together even here in this church to talk about these issues, to talk about what should we do and different ballot measures and things like that. That's wonderful. We need that kind of engagement. But we don't put our hope in it. We don't despair over certain outcomes. Our hope is not in power. It is in the king who came to give his power away. The king who gave his life to overcome the power of sin and death, that final enemy that Paul talks about. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for those of us who believe Jesus really is the king, we are all in on the resurrection of Jesus. It's resurrection or bust for us. It's not politics. It's not our retirement plan. It's not our hopes for the future, all the ways that we're going to change the world. Our hope is in the king who died and who came back to life. And if that sounds crazy, just watch that debate clip one more time and tell me who's crazy. So two final thoughts, two final encouragements. First, don't be afraid. Look at Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We don't need to be afraid. Jesus is the king. And then second, Psalm 2 ends with this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You don't need to fear if you have taken refuge in God's kingdom. Last week, the invitation from Psalm 1 was to spend more time with Jesus. If you want to be a deep person, spend time with Jesus. Today, Invitation is even more fundamental. Have you taken refuge in Jesus? Have you trusted your life to the resurrected King? The King who holds all things together because if you have, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear, not even death. Let's pray. Father, We come before you this morning. We know, again, just how deeply divided people are right now, how pessimistic people are, how much 
people are searching for hope. And the good news is, because of Jesus, because of his life, his death, his resurrection, we have a hope that is deeper and stronger and more powerful than anything we're experiencing in our life, more powerful even than the bigger forces at work in the world that are easy to see and despair in during a season like this one. And so God, whatever we felt led to do this election season, may we ultimately place and find our hope in you and your promise that you hold all things together and the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, which overcomes even the power of death. Father, I pray for those here this morning who have maybe never trusted that before, who maybe have never heard that before or have had a hard time believing that to be true, God, that you would make yourself known to them, that you would speak to them, and they would know you as king but also as friend, as one who brings reconciliation between people but also between us, between you and us. So God, I pray that there would be a sense of peace in our community about this moment in time that we are in because we know where our true hope is. It is in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.